In this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, Matt Kelly and I take a deep dive into the first FCPA enforcement action in 2021, the AMEC Foster Wheeler Enforcement Action. We consider the red flags that were missed, ignored, or consciously avoided, and lessons learned for the compliance professional. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to go down the rabbit hole, and we're going to go down the rabbit hole with Amex Foster Foster Wheeler, who has the first corporate FCPA settlement in 2021. So, Matt, uh, first of all, welcome back. Uh, Hello, Tom. Good to be back. So you want to try and give us a quick summary of the facts before we get into the deliciousness of this case, Matt? Yeah, I will try, but uh, it is not easy because this is a very twisty and convoluted case for sure. So um, this this settlement was announced on Friday afternoon, and technically it is against uh, a business called Amic Foster Wheeler. It, the root company involved here is Foster Wheeler, the engineering design firm for the energy sector. Uh, but Foster Wheeler was in the 2010s acquired by AMEC, which then subsequently was required by, by uh, a British company called the John Wood Group. So technically, the John Wood Group reached a settlement with British, American, and Brazilian regulators paying a total of $177 million to various people. Um, But really, what happened here is that Foster Wheeler, in the early 2010s, trying to break into the Brazilian energy market, uh, used an Italian agent, who is only identified as Italian agent, uh, who was also partners with a Brazilian fixer, who was a former employee of Petrobras, uh, those two decided that they were going to approach Foster Wheeler and see if they could lend their services so Foster Wheeler could bid on a very lucrative engineering and design contract from Petrobras. Uh, First off, right away, the story gets weird because the Italian agent and the Brazilian agent both were members of the same high-end clothing store in New York where also another customer was the former non-executive chairman of Foster Wheeler, who is still very influential with the company. And they convinced the manager of the clothing store in New York to A, pass along documents, confidential documents from Petrobras through them, through the clothing guy to the Foster Wheeler executive to show that they have a legit opening to the business, and then convinced the clothing guy to set up a meet with the Italian agent and the Foster Wheeler executive. Bizarre story, I think, about how these two businesses wound up falling in league with each other. But long story short, 2011 and 2012, most of the scandal involved the Italian agent trying to insert himself into this deal. uh, And basically, he knew he was never going to pass due diligence, said that therefore, Uh, The company, um, Foster Wheeler, assuming they won the contract, should pay a Monaco energy business intermediary, widely believed to be UnaOil, but not confirmed. But I don't know of any other big energy businesses in Monaco that are up to their eyeballs in corruption like UnaOil was. Um, So please pay them 
not me, because I won't pass your due diligence, which to for the record, Una Oil didn't pass due diligence with Foster Wheeler either. We had a mess about nonetheless, they gave the Italian guy a interim agent agreement when that violated Foster Wheeler policies um, back and forth and on and on. Ultimately, uh, the Brazilian fixer subcontracts the work to the Italian agent, and they funnel bribes to Petrobras so that Foster Wheeler could work that $190 million contract. Um, eventually, that all comes out, of course, by 2013 and 2014. Um, the invoices are coming in from the fixers, which lay out no details about what they were doing, because I don't think they were doing anything other than funneling bribes to Petrobras. Uh, but anyways, we have this uh, long and convoluted scheme that involved a $190 million contract. I think it was $1.1 million in bribes funneled to Petrobras over the course of several years in the early 2010s for ultimately what was, I think, about $17 million in ill-gotten profits. Uh, so we have disgorgement to the SEC. We have a three-year deferred prosecution agreement with the Justice Department. We do not have a compliance monitor. Um, and then I think they did get some credit for remediation after the fact, but did not get any credit for self-reporting because they didn't. Um, and then we still are waiting for exactly what the SFO serious fraud office in the UK, what the serious fraud office is going to resolve here because they have confirmed they're part of the settlement, but won't say exactly how pending court approval sometime, I think next week, but there we go. And we have scratched the surface of the weirdness and twists and turns. But Tom, I think I got it all. But correct me if I forgot any details. Let me, uh, you got the got the details, but let me see if I can add a little more color uh, because it's really sure. delicious just how either uh, head in the sand, conscious avoidance or outright corrupt the officials at Foster Wheeler were. You named the former chairman of the board. Uh, but he passed confidential uh, information on to the then acting CEO of the company who passed it on to the Brazilian country manager. The Brazilian country manager originally said, we're too far along in the process and we can't use this kind of help. Uh, pretty clear he recognized what was going on. Later, he came to Jesus and saw that this was going to be a positive for him by hook, nook, or crook. It's not reported in either the Department of Justice's criminal information or the Securities and Exchange Commission's cease and desist order statement of facts. Nevertheless, the business unit, the Foster Wheeler business unit, was its UK business unit, and that's the UK angle in all of this. Uh, their business unit is the one that signed the contract with Petrobras. The general counsel of that business unit drafted what was called an interim um, agreement that you correctly noted was against Foster Wheeler policy at the time. Nevertheless, the interim agency agreement was uh, provided to the Brazilian agent, uh, and then they were going to do ongoing due, or rather due diligence on, on the Brazilian agent to determine if they would move forward with a formal uh, finalized non-interim contract. That due diligence was done. The issue there was by this time, the Brazilian country manager uh, was told by someone unnamed in any of the documents that the reference to the Brazilian agent using the Italian agent 
was noted on a yellow sticky on the written due diligence forms. When that due diligence form was sent to the corporate headquarters, that yellow sticky was removed. So when it got to corporate, there was no any there was no information on the due diligence form indicating that the Brazilian agent was actually in league with the, the uh, corrupt Italian agent. Um, so uh, we also had um, one statement. And I'm trying to see if I can find it, uh, but that um, I think the country manager told the uh, general counsel once again that the Italian agent had uh, committed to paying a bribe to get this um, contract. So lots of specific red flags identified in both the SEC cease and desist order and the information statement of facts from the Department of Justice. And we've just focused on, as Matt said, the U.S. component of this. We don't yet have the SFO's uh, settlement, nor do we have the court uh, review of facts for the depart, uh, excuse me, the deferred prosecution agreement in the United Kingdom. And I must confess, uh, my Brazilian is not good enough to know whether or not we have the Brazilian order leniency agreement as yet. So lots going on here, lots of red flags tripped, lots of internal controls overridden. And I, I guess I don't find this to be that long ago, Matt, because it happened between 2012 and 2014. Um, and I think it was pretty well known at that time you couldn't pay bribes because it was a violation of the FCPA. But the other two things that are going on that I'd like to at least raise at this point that perhaps we could explore later is in 2014, Foster Wheeler, or rather AMAC, A-M-A-C, bought Foster Wheeler. In 2017, the John Wood Group PLC bought AMAC Foster Wheeler. So we had two uh, acquisitions of a company that was engaged in bribery and corruption, and somehow neither of either of those acquirers, either AMAC in 2014 or the John Wood Group in 2017, was able to pick up on these and self-report because, as you noted, in the Department of Justice's DPA, it specifically noted there was no self-disclosure uh, by Foster Wheeler. So uh, perhaps there were some failures in pre-acquisition due diligence as well. But as to these uh, tripwires and uh, internal controls, we saw uh, tripwires run over and internal controls overridden. How could perhaps the 2021 compliance practitioner use this information to, to really set up uh, some compliance procedures today, Matt? Well, that's actually where I, I was thinking mostly as I was looking at this case, because I am fascinated by the idea of the Italian agent who in 2011 and 2012 kind of like glommed on to Foster Wheeler and refused to go away. Kind of like that episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza just starts showing up at an office to go to work, even though he didn't have a job until eventually they just assumed he was there. Uh, there, there's a certain resonance of that bizarreness here. Um, I think that one question I would have, or if I were a compliance officer today looking at this, um, clearly the big issue was that they had this third party, this fixer, the Italian agent, who they knew was trouble, 
And the Brazilian country manager for Foster Wheeler had already clearly raised the alarms and said, we do not want this guy. And if we do it with this one, there's going to be a whole line of them behind him after that. They're going to shake us down for everything. Don't do it. Like the, the Brazil country manager knew this was a bad idea. And they knew that this particular guy was bad. And yet, I mean, they had the failed due diligence on both um, his Monaco uh, affiliates, whether it was Una Oil or anybody else, that they had failed due diligence, he had failed due diligence, uh, and they had violated their own terms. Like, how do you today look at that failure of third-party governance and say, okay, what can we have implemented at our organization today to avoid that kind of a thing? Now, I do think, Tom, to your point, uh, specific to Foster Wheeler, it seemed like a lot of executives at Foster Wheeler were just turning a blind eye to trouble. And yes, if you have a senior leadership team that is turning a blind eye to corruption and is gung-ho to engage in corruption, all of your compliance processes aren't going to amount to squat. I don't have much advice for you other than to really you know, polish up your LinkedIn profile and call the recruiters if the entire senior leadership at your organization is still very pro-corruption. But I don't think that is the case at many businesses today. And I do think that if you are trying and making a best effort to avoid these kind of third-party agents who are worming their way into the deal and getting into your orbit, you can implement a couple of practices now that would probably help to avoid what Foster Wheeler went through. I think it's a big plug for some sort of automated contract management where contracts that go against policy cannot be processed until, say, due diligence is complete. Um, I have talked about that before, more like payments can't go out to an agent when due diligence is incomplete. And there are ways to do that. You could certainly hardwire your SAP system to block that unless it's been cross-referenced to the due diligence report that's been complete. There's still a lot of companies that don't do it, but technologically, there's no reason why you can't have that. Um, but you know that way to insert blocking controls to prevent a contract from going out until due, due, due diligence is done. Um, that's the sort of thing you need to think about and would maybe have helped Foster Wheeler because they issued that interim agreement in violation of policy because due diligence wasn't done. And if you had automated all of that and inserted a blocking sort of control, you could have stopped it. Now, I know what a bunch of people are thinking. Well, yeah, sure, but I think, uh, you know, you, well, yeah, sure, Matt, but the general counsel could just override internal controls and grant an exception to that policy and get the interim agreement out to the bad agent anyways. Well, maybe... But in that case, that really speaks to the need for splitting compliance and legal into two separate functions where you could have something like to override this policy and to issue an interim agreement to an agent without due diligence. To override it and do that, you need signatures from both compliance and general counsel, and one can't override the other because, you know, what's the point of having that if just general counsel is running compliance anyways and says, yep, we're going to have all of this done. If you have a corrupt general counsel, which may have been the case here, I'm not entirely sure, but the evidence suggests that. But if you have a corrupt general counsel, but you are independent of the general counsel, then you could have more influence. You could take it to the audit committee. You could 
pocket all of this and go right to the SEC and report it then. Um, there are many ways that you could try to think through what are the processes we could have to A, prevent these agent agreements from getting signed, and then B, if there is an exception request that really maybe should be granted, let's make sure there's enough documentation there that you know we've clearly shown our work for the Justice Department. This is why we did this without due diligence anyways. That's the kind of thing I was thinking about as I was reading our um, Mr. Italian and his refusal to go away and his refusal to be ignored. So actually, I think that's a really good series of points, Matt, because you can put things in place that would hopefully signal up to the highest levels of a, com of a company above a CEO uh, to an audit committee or a compliance committee of a board, although recognizing that the Foster Wheeler, at least their uh, most recent chairman uh, at the time of this incident, was certainly uh, predisposed to, to work with this agent. But um, you, you can automate that now. And that uh, um, those uh, if you take those decisions really out of the, the front line and even up to the corporate office where it's automated, uh, perhaps that would uh, set off enough bells that it would stop it and force you as a compliance officer or a corporate executive to put a business justification in that you could at least argue to the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, would that be a fair assessment? It, in a, it would be. And I've talked about this before from time to time in other enforcement cases where basically we see management override of internal controls gets abused. And that is the issue. It's not management override of internal control. We should remember that's a necessary thing that you need because there might be exigent circumstances where overriding internal control is the right thing to do. We're talking about how do you identify abusive override of internal controls. And the way you do that is to sort of force documentation requirements for management override of internal controls and policies generally. Heavy documentation requirements so that if you're going to override a policy, you're going to override internal controls. That's going to stick out like a sore thumb. And if it's justified, then the sore thumb is okay. But everybody will be able to see it, and you can't hide it. And then if there is some sort of abusive, nefarious reason behind the override of internal controls, that's going to come to light much more quickly, and it'll be much more difficult to explain away to regulators, which is ultimately what we want. We want to be able to explain the good stuff and not explain the bad stuff, so you are accountable for it. But that is very true, not just here with Foster Wheeler, but I've seen it before in you know, accounting fraud or management fudging the numbers on an estimate. And why do they do that? Eh, just because they feel like it and they're managers and they can do it. And there's no documentation. It's always coming down to that. If you're going to have an automated policy or an automated controls and processes, that would be be the ideal. There's still going to be those occasions where you might have to grant an exception, but where's the documentation to show why that is warranted? That's the sort of thing that you want to think through. Um, and it, I suspect, I hope, that if you have that strong enough policy and documentation requirement, that would scare away the um, more, uh, I suppose, just uh, corrupt executives who are looking to commit some sort of a fraud. If they know they're going to have to explain things and it might look as bogus as their motives are, then maybe they'll they'll stop doing what it, whatever it was they're trying to do. 
Um, that's that's like that's my big takeaway with the Foster Wheeler case. Everything else going on, subcontracting to an agent who had already been nixed by your due diligence. We've seen that before. That was, I think, in the Panasonic case. Um, you know, not reporting poor acquisition due diligence. We've seen that before. Um, certain themes in this case are interesting, but they're not new. But what struck me as really telling and just instructive was this perpetual third-party insistence on he's going to worm his way into this deal come hell or high water. And sure enough, he did. How do you get these people away from you? What's the processes you want to have in place so that they they can't penetrate the deal? Um, that's where I would be looking if I were a compliance officer. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Along those lines, Matt, it wasn't George Constanza that came to mind uh, for me. It was the movie The Treasure of Sierra Madre, because in the first uh, contact between the corrupt Italian agent and the Brazilian country manager, the agent said to discuss for compliance, it is irrelevant now because you're facing an uphill battle. Uh, I translated that as to compliance. You don't need no stinking compliance. Um but the Brazilian country managers report to his superiors in Houston really articulated as well as I have ever seen why you don't want to engage in bribery and corruption, which was the following quote, if we do it in one project, we will be bullied to do it in all projects by him and others, end quote. So the country manager on the ground knew exactly what the company was getting into by agreeing to this? I I think one question I have about this case, which we don't know from the details and facts disclosed so far, is what then happened to let the Brazil country manager sort of go along with this? Uh, Shortly after all of these emails went back and forth in late 2011, early 2012, uh, Foster Wheeler did get the contract, but then the Italian agent started communicating with the Brazil, Foster Wheeler's Brazil manager at his personal email address rather than the Foster Wheeler email address. So what happened there? Um, You know, basically, I'm curious to know who sold out Foster Wheeler and reported this to the Justice Department. Was it the tailor in New York? Because I wonder what that guy was thinking as he's passing confidential documents. But um, Clearly, somebody somewhere brought this to the Justice Department's attention because there was no self-disclosure of it. Um, And I'm curious to know, how did that all come about? Uh, How did people who knew that this was a stinky deal ultimately decide to go along with it anyways? Um, Tom, I think your point is well taken that it seems like a lot of the senior executives were determined to do this. And if you have corrupt intent at the senior ranks, like I said before, it is very hard to make compliance systems work well in that environment. So that's a separate case. But I'm hoping that in the modern times, we're a bit less corrupt in corporate ranks these days. And maybe people are taking good business more seriously. Then maybe compliance officers have a bit more breathing room to put in systems that are actually going to work and, and do the job. So, Matt, as, as to how the Department of Justice received this information, I guess I went to perhaps another source, which was actually the Brazilian prosecutors and their in-depth investigation into uh, Petrobras 
they could have well uncovered this and passed that information along to the DOJ. I think several enforcement actions actually started in that manner. And at that point in time, sort of 2014 uh, to 2016, maybe even 2017, the Brazilian prosecutors were actively investigating Petrobras and they were literally in daily contact with their colleagues at uh, the Department of Justice over multiple matters. So it really didn't surprise me that something would come out of the um, of the Petrobras investigation or yet another case out of Petrobras. And I guess the maybe the final lesson I have to throw this out, Matt, is, you know, if you're going to go high-end men's clothing shopping, just go to London and Savile Row. You know, don't don't go to New York. All sorts of things can happen in New York. But if you go to Savile Row and you know you're going to get a quality product and probably a quality tailor as well. Tom, I was going to say, and my lesson in my post is if you shop off the rack at Target, you do not have these kind of problems. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I'm extraordinarily pleased to introduce the latest podcast addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, the ESG Report. The ESG has become one of the most ubiquitous phrases of 2021. I'm therefore starting a new podcast dedicated to that topic. In my first two episodes, it is a one-part premiere where I visit with Tricia Dascom from Silver, and we talk about the regulatory and investment framework around ESG and what that means for the compliance professional. So check out the ESG report on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week as we explore another compliance topic literally going into the weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.